0: All right. Today, I want to talk with you a bit about uh, a subject uh, related to the issue of evolution and uh, creation. And as has been pointed out by Stacy and uh, also by me, uh, you know, one of the issues is if you have a theory, you've got to also have the evidence to support that theory. Theories are great. So you can have all kinds of theories. How did such and such happen? You can imagine all kinds of ways something could happen. If a building is knocked over, you can imagine it was a storm or a, or a bomb or uh, a bulldozer. There are all kinds of possible stories, but then you have to go back and say, well, what, what is the evidence for that story? If, a, if an inspector for a fire goes in, he may have a theory about how the fire started. It may be arson, it could be lightning, it could be an electrical fire. And he's got a variety of possibilities and theories, and then he sets out to collect evidence to support one of those theories. Now, if you don't have the evidence, uh, the theory then fails. The theory, the theory doesn't hold up, and of course, uh, the same thing is going to be true here. You have Darwin's theory, and it is a theory, it was a theory, and it remains a theory. And what's necessary, then, is that there be supporting evidence. Well, if the theory is true, what would you expect to find? What, is, uh, what would I expect when I go looking uh, to discover in support of my theory? Now, this lecture is drawn from a variety of sources. If you'd like those, I'd be happy to get them to you. So it's, I'm going to begin with a series of quotes. Uh, Stephen Stanley, American paleontologist and evolutionary biologist at the University of, of Hawaii, says this, The known fossil record fails to document a single example of phylate or gradual evolution accomplishing a major morphologic transition and hence offers no evidence that the gradualistic model can be valid. Michael Denton, medical degree from Bristol University, 1969, and a Ph.D. from King's College in London, 1974. Uh, He was a senior research fellow in the biochemistry department at the University of Otago. Here's what he says. Despite the tremendous increase in geological activity in every corner of the globe, And despite the discovery of many strange and hitherto unknown forms, the infinitude of connecting links has still not been discovered, and the fossil record is about as discontinuous as it was when Darwin was writing the origin. The intermediates have remained as elusive as ever, and their absence remains, a century later, one of the most striking characteristics of the fossil record. There is no doubt that as it stands today, the fossil record provides a tremendous challenge to the notion of organic evolution, because to close the very, op- the very considerable gaps which at present separate the known groups would necessarily have required great numbers of transitional forms. Professor Niles Eldridge of the American Natural History Museum said if, if it's not the fossil record which is incomplete, then it must be the theory. Michael Pittman, English-born Australian biologist who was the chief scientist of Australia from 1992 to 1996, says here lies a powerful topology, a circular argument. The assumption of evolution is the basis upon which uh, index fossils are used to date rocks. And the same fossils are supposed to provide the main evidence for evolution. The fossil record, then, based on the assumption of evolution, is interpreted to teach evolution. By this sort of reckoning, the main evidence for evolution is the assumption of evolution. Now, ape men have long been the stuff of science fiction. We've perhaps seen the movie Planet of the Apes. Uh, We've certainly seen plenty of uh, comedies and movies and stories written about this. For example, in 1912, author Conan Doyle wrote The Lost World, a novel in which four males search for dinosaurs in the Amazon Valley and find a whole tribe of ape men missing links. In 2001-2002, the BBC's adaptation of this with computer-generated dinosaurs and a star cast was shown on television screens all around the world. In an apparent attempt to vilify biblical belief, the BBC added a mad priest, uh, played by Peter Falk, to, uh, to the team of explorers. Falk's character tries to kill the explorers to stop them from taking news of the ape men back to the world, lest the discovery destroy the Genesis account of creation. So, what is the truth about the so called ape men? You got an image in your mind, right? Of the ape man, the caveman, knuckles kind of dragging the ground, extra hairy, maybe a club, okay? Uh grunts when he walks. you got the image. Here's what Chesterton says about the caveman. This is one of my favorite passages um, in Everlasting Man. He says, today all of our novels and newspapers will be found swarming with numberless allusions to a popular character called a caveman. He seems to be quite familiar to us, not only as a public character, but as a private character. His psychology is seriously taken into account in psychological fiction and psychological medicine. So, for example, Freudian psychology uh, very much relies upon this. So, so far as I can understand, his chief occupation in life was knocking his wife about, I have never happened to come upon the evidence for the, this idea, and I do not know on what primitive diaries or prehistoric divorce reports it is founded. Nor, as I have explained elsewhere, have I ever been able to see the probability of it, even considered a priority as an assumption. We are always told without any explanation or authority that primitive man waved a club and knocked the woman down before he carried her off. In fact, people have been interested in everything about the caveman except what he actually did in the cave. Now, there does happen to be some real evidence of what he did in the cave. It is little enough, like all the prehistoric evidence, but it is concerned with the real caveman and his cave and not the literary caveman and his club. And it will be valuable to our sense of reality to consider quite simply what the real evidence is and not to go beyond it. What was found in the cave was not a club, the horrible, gory club notched with the number of women it had knocked on the head. The cave was not a bluebeard's chamber filled with the skeletons of slaughtered wives. It was not filled with female skulls all arranged in rows, all cracked like eggs. It was something quite unconnected one way or the other, with all the modern phrases and philosophical implications and literary rumors which confuse the whole question for us. So Chesterton goes on to tell us that what was actually found in the cave was an artist. When the psychoanalyst writes to a patient, this is Chesterton, the submerged instincts of the caveman are doubtless prompting you to gratify a violent impulse he does not refer to the impulse to paint in watercolors or to make conscientious studies of how cattle swing their heads when they graze. Yet we do know for a fact that the caveman did these mild and innocent things, and we have not, we have not the most minute speck of evidence that he did any of the violent and ferocious things. In other words, the caveman is commonly presented as simply a myth. Or rather, a muddle, for a myth at least has an imaginative outline of truth. So what are the scientific implications of the claim that there was an ape-man, a transitional form between ape and humans? That evolution is true and that it produced a line of semi-human creatures from some original non-human source? That the process... Which ultimately produced man was the death of the less fit along the way. That the millions of years necessary for this process actually occurred. And that the fossils claimed to be relics of such creatures constitute a reliable record. That is, have been interpreted correctly in anatomy, age, and presumed evolutionary relationships. What is the evidence? Well, there are many differences between humans and apes that can be seen in the fossil remains. These include the fact that humans walk erect and, and so have appropriate and distinctive knee and hip joints, backbones, different kinds of toes, etc. Humans also have opposable thumbs, make use of sophisticated tools as well as fire, and engage in diverse creativity.
1: They have a larger brain capacity than apes, smaller teeth set in a parabolic or V-shaped rather than a U-shaped, uh, rather than U-shaped jaws, and they
0: sometimes write, paint, and, uh, or make and play musical instruments. And I'd suggest those are not minor differences. There are different presuppositions. And if there are different presuppositions, different assumptions going in to study what we see, then there will necessarily be different conclusions. Creationists and evolutionists, with their different presuppositions, predict different things about the fossil record. If living things had really evolved from other kinds of creatures, then there would have been many intermediate and transitional forms with halfway structures, partial structures. However, if different kinds had been created separately, the fossil record should show creatures appearing abruptly and fully formed. The transitional fossil problem, so the question is, where's the evidence? Charles Darwin was worried that the fossil record didn't show what his theory predicted. He was concerned about that from the very beginning. Why isn't every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? Geology does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain, and Darwin noted this, uh, that this is the most obvious, he said, and serious objection which could be urged against his own theory. That was Darwin's observation about it. From what he knew and what he saw at the time, he said, i have got. Here's my theory, but we've got a problem. So the question is, is it any different today? As we go you know, 150 years forward, the late Dr. Colin Patterson, a senior paleontologist of the British Museum of Natural History, wrote a book titled Evolution. In reply to a questioner who asked why he had not included any pictures of transitional forms, here's what he wrote. I fully agree with your comments about the lack of direct illustration of evolutionary transitions in my book. If I knew of any, fossil or living, I would certainly have included them. I will lay it on the line, there is not one such fossil for which one could make a watertight argument. The renowned evolutionist and Marxist Stephen Jay Gould wrote, The absence of fossil evidence for intermediary stages between major transitions in organic design, indeed, our inability, even in our imagination, to construct functional intermediates in many cases has been a persistent and nagging problem for gradualistic accounts of evolution. He goes on to say, I regard the failure to find a clear vector of progress in life's history as the most puzzling fact of the fossil record. Now this would not be a problem if Gould had not decided before he examined the evidence that common ancestry evolution was a fact, quote, like apples falling from a tree. And that we can only permit ourselves, he says, to discuss possible mechanisms to explain that assumed fact. Now that's his position. He says, we can't, we don't have the evidence to support gradual evolution. So he became a proponent of something called punctuated equilibrium. He said, well, there must have been bursts of evolution that occurred for some reason. We don't know the reason. There must have been. Why? Because I'm committed to evolution and there's no evidence that it happened gradually. So it must have happened in these intense, relatively short periods of time. That's why we don't have fossils. So maybe for a few hundred years uh, there were lots and lots of changes going on and then it stopped. So it, uh, it reached an equilibrium. It, it, everything kind of leveled off for a while. And then we'd have another brief period of rapid change. Others went on to say this problem is so big that what we must have is an evolution occurred somewhere else, not on Earth. And that Somehow the universe must have been seeded, it's called the seminal universe theory, that some other more advanced intelligent system, world, sent this out into the world, and some of it landed on the earth, a hospitable planet for such things to develop, and so life got started in that way, uh, and so this would also account for um, these kinds of sudden changes. Now,
1: the gaps are huge. Teaching about evolution avoids discussing the vast gulf between non-living matter
0: and the first living cell, single-cell and multi-cell creatures, invertebrates and vertebrates. Those are all just enormous leaps that have to be bridged. The gaps between these groups should be enough to show that molecules uh, molecules to man evolution is without foundation. There are many other examples of different organisms appearing abruptly and fully formed in the fossil record. For example, the first bats and birds were fully-fledged flyers. Turtles are well-designed in a specialized group of reptiles with a distinctive shell protecting the body's vital organs. However, evolutionists admit, quote, "...intermediates between turtles and and the primitive reptiles from which evolutionists believe turtles probably sprang are entirely lacking. But they can't plead an incomplete fossil record because, quote, turtles leave more and better fossil remains than do other vertebrates. The oldest known sea turtle was a fully formed turtle, not at all transitional. It had a fully developed system for excreting salt, Without which a marine reptile would quickly dehydrate. This is shown by skull cavities, which would have held large salt excreting glands around the eyes. All 32 mammal orders appear abruptly and fully formed in the fossil record. The evolutionist paleontologist George Gaylord Simpson wrote in 1944. The earliest and most primitive members of every order already have the basic ordinal characters and in no case is an approximately continuous series from one order to another known. In most cases, the break is so sharp and the gap so large that the origin of the order is speculative and much disputed. And there is little, virtually none, to overturn this today. Now, here are some excuses. Like most evolutionist propaganda, the popular book titled Teaching About Evolution makes assertions that there are many transitional forms and gives a few so-called examples. In an article by evolutionist and atheist E.O. Wilson, quote, Discovering of a Missing Link, he claims to have studied, quote, nearly exact intermediates between solitary wasps and the highly social modern ants. But another atheistic evolutionist, W.B. Provine, says that Wilson's, quote, assertions are explicitly denied by the text. Wilson's comments are misleading at best, he says. Darwin also excused the lack of transitional fossils by, quote, the extreme imperfection of the fossil record. Nevertheless, even organisms that leave excellent fossils like turtles are lacking intermediates. Michael Denton points out that 97.7% of living orders of land vertebrates are represented as fossils, and 79.1% of living families of land vertebrates, 87.8% of birds are excluded as they are less likely to become fossilized. It is true that fossilization does require special conditions. Normally, when a fish dies, it floats to the top and rots and is eaten by scavengers. Even if some parts reach the bottom, uh, the scavengers take care of them. Scuba divers don't find the seafloor, for example, covered with dead animals being slowly fossilized. The same applies to land animals. Millions of buffalo or bison were killed in North America last century, but there are very few fossils. In nature, a well-preserved fossil generally requires rapid burial so that scavengers can't obliterate it, uh, and cementing agents to harden the fossil quickly are necessary as well. Only catastrophic conditions can explain most fossils, for example. Things like a global flood and its aftermath of Widespread Catastrophism. And so the book, Teaching About Evolution, goes on to assert that, quote, in many cases, such as between primitive fish and amphibians, amphibians and reptiles, reptiles and mammals, and reptiles and birds, there are excellent transitional fossils. But the, the book does not provide a single example. Now, Let's consider the function of possible intermediates. The inability to imagine functional intermediates is a real problem. The key word here is functional. If a bat or bird evolved from a land animal, the transitional forms would have had four limbs that were neither good for legs nor good for wings. So how would such a thing be selected? The fragile long limbs of hypothetical halfway stages of bats would seem more like a hindrance than a help. That's why it's hard to imagine how these things can function. What about the soft parts that change? Uh, many creatures would have needed also to change drastically, uh, and there is little chance of preserving these in the fossil record. For example, the development of the amniotic egg would have required many different innovations, including the shell, the two new membranes, excretion of water-insoluble uric acid rather than urea because urea would poison the embryo, Uh, albumin together with special acid to yield its water, yolk for food, a change in the genital system allowing the fertilization of the egg before the shell hardens. That's just to name a few. Another example is the mammals. They have many soft part differences from reptiles for example mammals have a different circulatory system including red blood cells without nuclei a heart with four chambers instead of three and one aorta instead of two and a fundamentally different system of blood supply to the eye mammals produce milk to feed their young mammalian skin has two extra layers hair and sweat glands Mammals have a diaphragm, a fibrous muscular partition between the thorax and the abdomen, which is vital for breathing. Reptiles breathe in a very different way. Mammals keep their body temperatures constant, their warm-bloodedness, requiring a complex temperature-controlled system. The mammalian ear has the complex organ of corti absent from all reptile ears. Mammalian kidneys have a very high ultrafiltration rate of the blood. This means the heart must be able to produce the required blood pressure to push it through that filter. Mammalian kidneys excrete urea instead of urea acid, which requires different chemistry. They, also finally, uh, they are also finally regulated to maintain constant levels of substances in the blood, which requires a complex endocrine system. I mean, we are just scratching the surface of the differences. And every one of these systems is a complex system. If you take out one piece of the system, the whole thing collapses. You can't live, you can't see, you can't hear, you can't breathe, you can't move blood, you can't excrete uh, waste, you can't digest, you can't reproduce, you can't do anything, you can't live. Now, because of this desire to prove this theory, evolutionary theory is a field that is ripe for hucksters and hoaxers. Evolutionists looking for evidence of ape men search for fossils that show anatomical features that look intermediate between those of apes and humans, or that show some but not all of the uh, bodily characteristics that I was just talking about. The most notable hoax was one I'm sure you've all heard of: the Piltdown Man. He was so he was allegedly discovered in England in stages, really, from 1908 to 1912. Pieces, fragments of bone. This com- this comprised a human skull cap plus the lower jaw, as it turned out to be, of an orangutan the teeth of which had been stained and filed to make them look human and match the size of the teeth in the upper human jaw. Although the hoax was poorly done, it fooled the establishment and was probably the most quoted, quote, evidence for evolution for about 40 years, until 1953 when the fraud was exposed. Another huge hoax field has been the way in which scores of deformed humans were exhibited as, quote, eight men or eight women in circus sideshows from the early 1800s for over a century with no known scientific reputation of the frauds that were perpetrated at the time. These desperate needs of evolutionists to find a missing link has also contributed to some really inexcusable scientific, shall we call them boo-boos, mistakes. So, for example, most notable was the Nebraska man. You got to understand, if you're a scientist, especially if you're looking for a grant and for money and for fame and attention, there's nothing better than you to be the one that discovers the missing link. Well, it turns out a pig's tooth found by Harold Cook in 1922 was proclaimed by the eminent evolutionist Dr. Henry Fairfield Osborne to be uh, to belong to the first anthropoid man-like ape of America, um, which he uh, named uh, Hesperopithecus, or Western Ape. The illustrated London News, June 4, 1922, printed an artist's impression of the tooth's owner. Remember, this is a pig's tooth, it turns out to be. But the artist's rendition showed this tooth's owner as an upright standing ape man, showing the shape of his body, head, nose, ears, hair, etc., together with his wife, domestic animals, and tools. This highlights the fact that the fossils of the so-called humanoids are often only fragments of bones, which when combined with enormous doses of imagination are transformed into ape-men. So where does all this leave the matter of evidence for ape-men? Well, Australopithecus, southern ape-man, is the name given to a number of fossils found in Africa. These are claimed by evolutionists to be the closest to the alleged common ancestor of apes and humans. However, Dr. Fred Spohr has done CAT scans of the inner ear region of some of these skulls, and these show that the semicircular canals with determined balance and the ability to walk upright resemble those of extant great apes. The most well-known is one that was named Lucy. There are all kinds of publications about Lucy, National Geographic and so forth, a 40% complete skeleton found by Donald uh, Jonathan in Ethiopia in 1974 and called Australopithecus, uh Afrinus. casts of Lucy's bones have been imaginative, imaginatively restored in museums worldwide to look like an ape woman. Uh, for example, with ape-like face and head, a human-like body, hands, and feet. However, the original Lucy fossil did not include the upper jaw, nor most of the skull, nor hand, or foot bones. Several other specimens do have the long curved fingers and toes of tree dwellers, as well as restricted wrist anatomy and knuckle-walking chimpanzees and gorillas. Dr. Martin Lubnow quotes the evolutionist Matt Cartmill, Duke University, David Pilbeam, Harvard University, and the late Glenn Isaac, Harvard University, quote, These fossils are rapidly sinking back to the status of peculiarly specialized apes. Oops. I don't think National Geographic did a retraction. Next up is uh, Homo habilis, or handyman, so named because he supposedly was handy with tools. Uh, the most well-known is called it's a clever name, KNM-ER 1470, uh, comprising a fossil skull and leg bones found by Richard Leakey in Kenya in 1972. I remember this uh, being again promoted and proclaimed. Um, I was a senior in high school. Spore's CAT scan of the inner ear of Homo habilis skull, known as STW-53, shows that it walked more like a baboon than a human. Today, most researchers, including Spore, regard this as, quote, a bin of various species, including bits and pieces from uh, Australopithecus and Homo erectus and not as a valid category. In other words, it never existed as such, and so can't be the supposed link. Next up is Homo erectus, or upright man. Excavations of many of these fossils show evidence of the use of tools, the control use of fire, and they buried their dead, and some used red ochre for decoration. Their brain size, though smaller on average than modern humans, was within the human range. Recent research has shown evidence that they had seafaring skills. Spores' cat scan of their inner ear architecture shows that their posture was just like ours. Even some evolutionists concede that they should be put in the same species as modern man. And then there's Neanderthal man, maybe our most famous. I think he's on Geico commercials now, isn't he? Uh, this group uh, that once lived in Europe and the Mediterranean lands. Researchers who first reconstructed these fossils gave them a bent-over ape-like appearance. However, the early reconstruction suffered from heavy doses doses of evolutionary bias, along with the fact that some specimens suffered from a bony disease, bony diseases such as rickets, which caused is caused by vitamin D deficiencies from childhood and can result in the bowing of the skeleton. Modern reconstruction of Neanderthals are consistent with the creationist convention that they are fully human. Despite attempts made on the basis of mitochondrial DNA fragments in one set of Neanderthal bones to try to assign them to a separate species, even some evolutionist authorities claim that they should be regarded as Homo sapiens humans. So how did these and other extinct human fossils originate? Creationists say that the early human fossils are various groups of people who lived in the post-Flood era. The reason the oldest ape fossils are found below the oldest human fossils in many locations is that after the flood, animal migration happened more quickly than human migration, which was still waiting for Babel. Well, we're going to stop there because we're out of time, and we'll continue more on this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is sure and true. You are unchanging. You are everlasting. Help us, Lord, to stand on that which is certain and to be skeptical of all other claims. And we pray now that you would bless us as we prepare for worship. In Jesus' name, amen.